This is indeed what we believe. And we need reminding each and every Lord's Day. In fact, we need reminding every day. But that's uniquely what Sundays is about, to be reminded, to hit refresh, to experience a reset, to reorient ourselves once again. I guess if I were going to be honest this morning, I would ask you, and not asking for verbal replies, but don't you grow weary sometimes, weary of it all? There's a reason the New Testament says, do not grow weary in well-doing. Because that's a dynamic that believers, not just in our day, but believers for 2,000 years ago, from 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, we've struggled with. Growing weary in doing well. It's easy to do. And that has to be at least one reason why we're here this morning, why God has designed, and again through 2,000 years, why His people have obeyed Him and come together in all kinds of different settings, sometimes in beautiful buildings like this, sometimes in storefronts, sometimes under hidden darkness, as some of you know from your families, had to worship in secret, in history, in caves, in homes, but in all different places, with all different formats, with various different liturgies, the followers of Jesus have come together at least once a week to hit reset, to address this weariness and well-doing that some, can sometimes be overwhelming, sometimes it can be pervasive. And what we find is we find new strength to go on. We find in the worship of God's people, hopefully we find in our fellowship and connection with one another, and most especially we find in the teaching and preaching of God's Word, we find a regeneration, as it were. We, we find a renewal. In fact, this is likely at least part of what Paul has in mind in Romans 12, where he says we should experience the renewal of our minds. It checks our thinking. It reorients what we think think to be true and real and ultimate, and we find assurance, regular assurance. And in the context of the book of Revelation, we find reassurance that God is on His throne, and that one day Jesus will, if I can say it this way, bring that throne to earth, and one day will rule on this earth. That's what we find in our text this morning. We're in the book of Revelation, and we've landed in chapter 20. Would you turn there with me and read along as I read? This morning, I'm going to have you look at a couple of different passages, so I want you to keep your Bible handy. I'm also going to give you the page references if you want to use a pew Bible, but it would be great if, as they used to say in Texas, if you would lay eyes on the text this morning. And so that's what I'm going to ask you to do as we begin in Revelation 20. And if you use the Pew Bible, that's on page 1236, Revelation chapter 20. And here we find the beginning of the kingdom age. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. 
I remind you as I read, this is God's word for us today. Revelation 20. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended, and after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. That's not the end of the story, by the way. Thank God. I was thinking as I was reading in the churches in which I grew up, it was very common for people to say amen, and every now and then shout amen. And I was thinking as I read there in verses 1 and 2, where it says, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him. That's a place where somebody would have shouted, Amen. And that's our subject this morning. We're only going to look at the first three verses today. We'll finish the rest of the text next Sunday. But what you have here is you have John presenting his vision of what we call the kingdom age. And let me just say up front, as much as we would love to see a picture of the life in the kingdom age, of what it will look like to live under the kingship of Jesus literally on earth, we don't really have details. In fact, what chapter 20 really gives us primarily is a focus on the participants of the kingdom age. The people who participate, the beings would be a better way to say it, who participate in the kingdom age, the participants. Before we get into this, let me remind you, let me give you a bit of review and an overview of the primary ages of God's timetable. You remember this? One of the things we said is that really from however you want to date it, from either creation or sometimes we can make a delineation at the coming of Jesus in the gospel age, but really we're living in the present age. In the book of Revelation from chapter 1 verse 1 and all of the visions up until about the middle of chapter 19, it details the present age in which we are now living and how that present age will come apart and the end of it will come together. And that's what the book of Revelation details. Then you have, we believe, what is called the kingdom age, or another way to say it would be the intermediary age, the intermediate age. And this is the temporal age. It's a long but limited age. It's a time frame. 
And we don't have as many verses in Revelation as perhaps we might think because it is a focus of much of the Bible, and yet when we finally find its arrival, we don't see as many details as we'd love to find. It is detailed in the book of Revelation somewhere in the middle of chapter 19, and it goes through chapter 20. And then, after we find this partial manifestation of the kingdom, and what we find is that the kingdom, and we'll even see it this morning in one of our texts, the kingdom age merges into the eternal age. But nevertheless, the kingdom age is a real, intermediate, long but limited age in which Jesus will reign. By the way, let me tell you that the Old Testament promises pointed to this. Even the Jewish rabbinic interpreters of the Old Testament believed that there was some kind of intermediate age. And the early church, at least in the first 300 years of the church, believed that Jesus would come back and set up a kingdom that would be for a long period of time, a thousand years, and then the eternal age would begin. This is not some kind of new creation, as sometimes our critics would tell us. So you have the present age, you have the kingdom age, and then beginning in chapter 21, where we will arrive in a few weeks, you have the beginning of the eternal age. And in studying the eternal age, that'll take us through to the end of the year, indeed, through the Christmas season. But this is the way the book of Revelation lays out. The present age, it ends, the kingdom age begins after likely a thousand years, then that morphs into the eternal age. But here's what we believe. We believe this is the plain reading of Scripture. We believe that Jesus' eternal kingdom begins here in time and on earth. It begins in history in the scope of, in the term of the, the broad view of the way time plays out. The kingdom of Jesus on earth is not just a heavenly eternal reality. It is that His kingdom is eternal and heavenly. And it involves the new earth and the new heavens. But it also has an in-history, on-earth component to it. He will reign on earth within history. And that's appropriate. Because, stay with me for a moment, in history and on earth is where God's creation was corrupted by Satan's deception. In history on earth is where God's ultimate image of His glory, man and women, fell into sin. In history on earth is where Satan pursued God's people Israel under the old covenant. In history on earth is where Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again. In history on earth is where generations of Christians have pursued faithfulness. In history on earth is where the martyrs bled and died for their faith. In history on earth is where sin, fallen the curse, has brought heartache and pain to all of us. In history on earth is where Satan destroys marriages, abuses children, deceives nations, and infects churches. Do you see the reasoning? In history on earth, Jesus will come back and set that right. He will establish his kingdom on earth where so much has been violated. He will show his glory on earth where he has so often been rejected. His kingdom will come, and at least for a period of time, it will exist in this world, in history, on the earth. Now chapter 19, where we were last week, it ends with a cliffhanger. You remember chapter 19? The king of kings returns on white horse with armies, 
And then there's this eternal wedding supper that begins. It's a celebration that begins and never ends. And then you have, in contrast to that, you have this gruesome feast of the carrion. You know, all of the birds of the air that feast on the armies of the wicked. All of that's in chapter 19. And if you remember, or if you know your Bible, chapter 19 ends with the false prophet and Antichrist, who's called the beast, cast into the lake of fire. Now, in the seven churches that first received this book, in the believers that have read it now for 2,000 years, and for you, if you, especially if you're a new student of the book of Revelation and you're reading through, and you read at the end of chapter 19 that Antichrist, the beast, is cast into the lake of fire, and the false prophet, the beast, is cast into the lake of fire, you have a question. It's a cliffhanger. You remember we use the term an unholy trinity? There's an unholy trinity, just like there's the holy trinity, although not just like because it is not analogous. But nevertheless, there's an unholy trinity in the book of Revelation. It is the false prophet who organizes and leads the false religions of the world, a demon-possessed man at the end of time. You'll also have the Antichrist, a demon-possessed man who rules over the political systems of the world, and they are cast into the lake of fire. But what about this one who is called, earlier in the book of Revelation, he's called the dragon. He's called the old serpent. He's called Satan. He's called the deceiver of the brethren. And if you're reading along and it's fresh information to you and you've been paying attention, the question comes, what about that guy? What about the evil one? What's going to happen to him? We finally dealt with the Antichrist. We finally dealt with the false prophet. What about Satan himself? And we find that answered in chapter 20. And basically what we find is he has no part in the coming kingdom. In fact, that's what I want you to see. He doesn't participate in this coming kingdom age. The evil one. The evil one is excluded. The evil one is chained. The evil one is bound. Let's refresh our knowledge of this by looking again at verse 1 of chapter 20. The vision is this. An angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, as I read, as we reread these verses, I want to emphasize the images Uh, It's an angel. An angel is a spirit being. And so you would be within rights to ask, what kind of spirit being holds what kind of chain? What kind of key does a spirit being hold? And we'll answer that in a moment. The answer is not going to satisfy you, but we'll answer it in just a moment. But notice the angel has in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now let me stop. The term thousand years in Latin is the term from which we get millennium. It means a thousand years. And there's all kinds of scholarly debate about are these literal 365-day years, a thousand of them? Is this just a long period of time? Is this just a figurative idea for some kind of generic status that happens in history or in the spiritual realm? And all we can say about that is this. It's possible, I suppose, that a thousand years is not precisely a thousand years. But the text gives us no reason to believe that. If you're just going to read the text straightforward, 
it says a thousand years. Skeptics want to argue, say, well, the Old Testament doesn't say anything about a thousand years. That may be true, but that doesn't mean that Revelation 20 doesn't say something about a thousand years. And so it might be symbolic. If I get to heaven and I find out that the kingdom, if I get to the kingdom age, which I will be in, I guess we should just stop and acknowledge that. If you're a Jesus follower, as we'll see next week, you'll be part of the kingdom age. So when we get there, if it turns out to be 10,000 years, you can, you, can, you can criticize me for 10,000 years about that. But if you just take the text for what it says, there has to be, generally speaking, there has to be a compelling reason to say this has to be symbolic. And there's no reason in the text that it has to be symbolic. So likely it's a thousand years. But one way or another, whether it's a thousand years specifically or a long, long period of time, one way or another, it is a long time that is limited. This is not heaven. This is not eternity. This is a specific period of time we're talking about. It is what we call the millennium. And so what this angel does, he comes with the chain to the bottomless pit, or the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain. He seizes Satan, and verse 3, and threw him into the pit. This is the vision that John saw. Threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Let me read the words again. He threw Satan into the pit and shut the door of the pit and sealed it. The idea is locking it over him. Now, those are strong and dramatic words. I'm emphasizing them for a reason. So that he, that is Satan, might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now let me stop right there. This abyss, this prison as it were, this chasm as it were, it has shown up already in Revelation. And remember the demons that Jesus interacted with in Luke 8, they didn't want to go back to the abyss it is some kind of holding cell. It is some kind of prison for demonic spirits. And in Revelation 9, remember there's an angel, likely the same angel who comes, and he opens the abyss and the demons come out. And so this is a holding place for demons. It's a place of bondage. Now, we struggle in all of this with this dynamic where we get tripped up so easily. These are spirit beings. So, this is not the kind of prison as though it has walls and windows and doors and locks. But it is nevertheless real. Because spirit beings are real and the spiritual realm is real. So it is not material in the way we understand the material world. And by the way, this is really the only way we know to think about the world because so far this is all we've experienced but it is a mistake to say that because it's the spiritual realm, it's not really real. It is significantly real. It is just not material in the way we understand it. And so, in answer to your question, what kind of chain chains up a spiritual being like Satan? I would say one that works in the immaterial spiritual realm. How's that for an answer? This is a locked dungeon. Later, we're going to find a lake of fire. And these are not mere symbols, but they are real places that exist in the spiritual realm. But what's going on here is that this is the end game for Satan. And 
It has been a long time coming. Amen? Let me show you how long. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the garden after the fall, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the seed of the woman, shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. An enigmatic, veiled promise, but right from the beginning, God says, Satan, serpent, your time is limited. We know that this is the ultimate reason that Jesus came. In the book of Hebrews, we read this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is the Redeemer, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So this is Jesus' endgame. Jesus' endgame is to destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, this is God's agenda. What's God doing in history? He's going about, at the very least, he's going about destroying the one who has the power of death. And so you begin to see some of this happen in the ministry of Jesus, and this can be confusing. It's caused some of our critics to misinterpret what happens in the book of Revelation. But for example, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man? Indeed, then he may plunder his house. So Jesus was using a metaphor here of spiritual warfare in the kingdom coming, and he talks about his victory over spiritual forces, and he uses this metaphor of binding the strong man. And let me just say that some people link that idea of binding the strong man, and they go and spiritualize the book of Revelation, and they say, see, this is what is happening in Revelation 20, but that won't work. They see the same kind of thing in Luke 10, they claim where it says in verse 17, the 72 returned to Jesus with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And once again, some interpreters say, see, there's Satan's fall. That's where Satan's destroyed. That's where Satan is put into bondage. Well, look at what Jesus says in John 12. He says, now is the judgment of this world. This is just before his betrayal and crucifixion. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What we begin to see here is that there's this process. The promise is in Genesis 3. The process is going along where Jesus, he basically, as it were, you could say it this way, he invades the world, his own world. And he's trying to take it back, and it's a process of spiritual warfare. We see this clarified in Colossians chapter 2, and it all centers on the cross of Jesus. There the Bible says this, And you, readers, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This that is, all these legal demands, this this record of debts, this Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, that is, in Jesus. This is what the Father has done. Now, all I'm trying to show you is that the fall of Satan has been a long time coming. And the nexus of it, the core of it, 
the ground of it is what happened on earth 2,000 years ago when Jesus, the Son of God, assumed humanity and lived on this earth and conquered the forces of darkness on his cross and then in his empty tomb. And this has been, let me illustrate it this way. If you're a scholar of military history, anyone? Anyway, if you're a scholar of military history and you've read World War II, nearly every scholar of World War II will say that for all practical purposes, the war against Hitler in Germany, it was over after D-Day. But it wasn't over. In all practical purposes, D-Day was the victory, but there was a painful, painful campaign that lasted for over a year and a half before finally Germany was defeated. But D-Day, in a sense, was Satan falling from heaven. D-Day was basically Satan being bound, as it were. Jesus' D-Day was when he came and when he conquered ultimately forever the forces of evil on the cross, but there's still a mopping up exercise that's going on. And it continued on in the history of the church and it continues on in our lives today. So is Satan defeated? Yes, he is. Is he yet bound? No, he's not. Not ultimately. But it will come. And can I stop? And before I say anything else about that, let me just say that This is the reason, at least one reason, that the gospel is so central to everything we are and everything we believe. It's our hope. It's our hope for our personal salvation. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, the one who came and lived a perfect life and then died, he is willing to give his perfect record to you, and he is willing to take your sins and put them all upon himself. This is the point of the gospel, of the good news. This is the point of what Jesus did for us. But he didn't just do that for us as sinners. He did it in a broadest sense in the cosmic warfare of taking back his creation. Victory over Satan. The gospel is personal, but it's also cosmic in its implications. This is the victory over Satan, which we are reading about finally coming about at the beginning of 20 and then culminated in a few weeks in the end of chapter 20. And so therefore, in this in-between stage, as we continue to wait, what does the Bible tell us in Romans chapter 16? Paul anticipated that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see, there's a crushing that's still going on. There's a battle that's still going on. There's a mop-up operation, even though D-Day has already happened, and you and I are part of it, the spiritual warfare. And so we won't take time this morning to go back through Revelation and show you the other skirmishes that will happen at the end of time. The battle in heaven with Michael, Satan cast to the earth, all of that, we've we've studied that in chapter 12 of Revelation, in chapter 17 of Revelation. But here's the point, and perhaps I've lost some of you, so let me try to draw you back. Why does any of this matter? What difference does any of this make? Let me show you in 2 Corinthians. Would you turn there? Because this is one of those passages you need to look at this morning. 2 Corinthians, turn there and look in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians, again, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1227. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. 
here we find this reality. This is why it matters. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. And what are they they not able to see? Look at it. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why it matters. You see, Satan and God are not co-equal combatants. It's not like, this is not like Star Wars, where there's a good side of the force and a dark side of the force. God is the ruler of all, but in this temporal sense, there is a God of this world, and he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's the reason this matters, because if this is not true, we have no guarantee that Satan will ever be conquered. Look at his power. He, bl- he deceives the nations. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. What's your confidence that that will ever end? At the very least, Revelation 20. What God promised in the garden and what Jesus began to put into action when he incarnated upon this earth and even still today as we have the opportunity to crush Satan under our feet, this is a process that will come to fruition during the kingdom age at its beginning and as we'll see then at its end. So what I want to show you this morning for the rest of our time as quickly as I can, and hopefully as clearly as I can, is I want to show you what Satan's binding near in the kingdom will look like, because it is glorious, glorious news. It is good news. This is what Satan's binding, his absence during the kingdom, will look like. And I have this morning three categories, even though on your notes you have two. I'm going to give you a third, and there's not even any extra charge. So um, three categories this morning. The first is this. Satan's binding during the kingdom, it will look like the end of demonic deception. The end of demonic deception. No more demonic deception. Some of you have waited for me to do this, so let me do it as quickly and as clearly as possible. There are three broad eschatological positions, ways to read the book of Revelation, ways to talk about the end time. Three broad categories. And they all center around how you understand the coming of Jesus and the kingdom, how that's going to play out in reality. The first two positions that are not our positions are post-millennialism, which means the millennium is after something. And what the millennium is after is basically it's either after or it's part of the process of us bringing the kingdom of God to earth ourselves. Now, let me be fair to our brothers who believe this. They believe that that's all through the power of the gospel. They believe it's the promise that the church will never be defeated. And so they believe in history, there will finally come a time when the gospel will become so victorious, the church will become so triumphant, that the forces of evil will be set aside, and the kingdom of earth will come on earth as a result of the church. I hate to be sarcastic, but you know that's one of my spiritual gifts. But to post-millennial brethren, I would say, how's that working for you right now? History has never played out that way. But that's post-millennialism. Some, of good, some good brothers believe that. By the way, it's connected also, if you care about this kind of thing, it's connected a lot to theonomy, which is the rule of God in culture. 
and the position that the Old Testament ought to be the governing constitution of every culture on earth that's connected to postmillennialism. So there's a little bit of, quite a bit of theological conflict that's going on right now about that. Postmillennialism. Amillennialism basically means it's often described, again, by critics like me, it's often described as believing there's no millennium, but that they object to that. They believe that we are now in the millennium, that this is the kingdom age, that these promises, again, they're all spiritual, so they're not meant to be applied literally. And so right now, Jesus rules from heaven, and this is the kingdom, and Satan is bound in that he cannot deceive the nations. That's their emphasis. And so we are in the millennium, and the point is, both postmillennialists and amillennialists neither believe in that kingdom, that intermediate age that we talked about early on. They just believe there's two ages, the present age and eternity. Jesus comes back, and then eternity begins. But we hold a position which is called, historically, premillennialism. We believe that Jesus will return, and then at his return, he establishes this intermediate age, this kingdom age, which lasts for a limited but long period of time, we believe a thousand years, and then at the end, the eternal age begins. Now, why does all of this matter? It matters, and the reason I bring it up is because what you understand about the presence of demonic deception and the binding of Satan, it's all wrapped up in how you understand the kingdom. If this binding of Satan is not literal, then you look around the world and you say, you look at the evidences everywhere and you say, this looks like the binding of Satan? I mean, after all, I'm preaching this in October. All next week and especially through next weekend, our entire culture will celebrate death and witchcraft and demons and evil. But Satan is bound? There's rampant moral rot everywhere. The nations are at war. Madmen are in charge of our nations, perhaps even our nation. And that's not just this administration. And you're telling me Satan is chained? Satan is forbidden by God to deceive the nations right now? All these various post-millennial and amillennial claims that all of this is just spiritualized in the sense it's not going to happen the way we believe the Bible claims it's going to happen. It's a painful, painful process. It's awkward to watch our amillennial brethren and our post-millennial brethren try to, try to work through this idea that is so clearly stated. We read the words and we emphasize them that the angel comes and binds Satan for a thousand years and locks the door. My favorite explanation of this, rationalization, is the one millennialist who says, yes, Satan is chained, but he's just on a very long chain right now. No, these elaborate measures that we read about in Revelation 20 that God will take at the end of time, the key, the chain, the throwing, the closing, all these happen in the spiritual realm, but what they indicate, the language can only mean one thing, a complete cessation of Satan's influence, not just some kind of restraint, not some, some kind of incremental curbing of Satan's power. It's like a violent pit bull. He may be chained, and he's not yet put down, but he's made completely powerless if you have any wisdom at all. 
And this is Satan during the kingdom age. And you need to remember what the text says. If you'll look at it again, if you'll just glance, it says that he might not. This is a purpose clause in, in verse 3, the middle of the verse. So that, we're back in Revelation 20, by the way. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Deception is the issue. Now let me stop for just a moment and remind you what the seven churches would have thought of this, what John would have thought of it, and what we are to think of it. We have to be aware that the primary work of Satan is done through deception. It's deception. And what is the antidote to that? What is the guard against deception? You know what it is. It's the Word of God. Jesus said, Thy word is truth, speaking of the word, speaking of, of what God has said, the Father. This is the word, it is truth. And for God's people, if we are not in the word, if we, don't not, if we do not labor to understand the word, if we don't call the word to our memories, we will be in a dangerous, vulnerable position of being deceived because he is a master deceiver. He is so characterized by deception that when he is bound for a thousand years, the primary purpose of that binding is to stop his deception. And that means until he is bound, we better be alert. We better be careful. And by the way, you're not left to your own wisdom on that because not only do you have the Holy Spirit, but then God calls you into communion with the church as we study and labor together to understand His truth. We have the supernatural resource of the Word and the Holy Spirit. It looks like the end of demonic deception. It also looks like the end of, number two, the end of cultural rebellion. And I'll just hurry through this, but... If you remember back in chapters 17 and 18, what we find is that Babylon is destroyed and the religious systems of the world are destroyed. And there is this, we, we swim in this cultural water that is murky and dark. We can never really escape it. Christians have tried over 2,000 years. We can't really escape it. And we are inevitably influenced. God hasn't taken us out of the world. We're to live in the world, but not to be of the world. So we have to always be aware of the cultural rebellion, which defines, in my opinion, defines every human structure. Every human structure. This is the folly of the contemporary debate about so-called Christian nationalism. To think that there's some kind of nationalistic movement that can truly be Christian, it will be perverted, because that's not how God works. It gets confused and perverted and twisted. Cultural rebellion, it is part of history. And as the poet said, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. And that's what this fallen world looks like. And we need to be aware of it. But there will come a day when Jesus reigns, when because Satan's deception is removed, there will be no more cultural rebellion. There will be no more churches that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. There will be no more governments that flaunt and reject what God says about marriage and sexuality. There will be no more organizations at all that object to God's truth that pervert the truth of God, that wage war against the truth of God. The kingdom age will be free of cultural rebellion. 
And that means that truth will reign, that justice will flow, that peace will have its day. We're not there yet. And so for the seven churches and for John who wrote this and for us, we need to be aware that we live, we swim in this pervasive, systemic, cultural seduction that the book of Revelation ends up calling Babylon, which is just exalted humanism. That, that even the best organizations that we can be part of, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, it's not that it's wrong to be part of civic organizations or political parties or to work for good. All of that is appropriate and good as we have ability and power. But if we think that those are the things that are going to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God, we are fools and we have been deceived. And the truth is, very much of it will leave us def- devastated and disappointed. Now, what's the solution to this? The solution, again, as I've already implied, is throughout history, Christians have have circled together and tried to separate out from the world. That doesn't seem to be what the Bible calls us to do. But here's the solution. It's going to be so unsatisfying to some of us. But the solution is the local church. That's the antidote. That's God's solution to not being seduced away by the by the cultural rebellion of politics and religion is the flawed, messy, difficult commitment to a local body of believers whom you can serve, who will serve you, whom will sometimes break your heart, and whom you from time to time will offend. This is how God delights in strengthening His people amid cultural rebellion. I've got to hurry. The third one that I said I would add is that not only missing will be demonic deception and also missing will be cultural rebellion, and those are primarily because Satan will be bound, but I have to add a third, and we find it from the Old Testament, and this is there's the mitigation of the curse. There's somehow the mitigation of the curse, and chapter 20 does not really describe it, but all of the Old Testament references it. That somehow, in some way, this intermediate kingdom, some way or another, aspects of the curse will be mitigated. There still will be death. There still, we find at the end of the the millennium, there will be rebellion and sin. And so all of it will not be done away. There will still be the presence of death until the end of chapter 20. If you want to read ahead, death gets thrown into the lake of fire, finally. But until then, there are still these problems, but they are mitigated. And so, for example, we read earlier, by the way, in Isaiah 2 about that glorious time. Uh, Look, for example, in Isaiah 11, the word should be on the screen. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Let me just stop. That's not the way this world works. That's not the way this world under the curse. That's not what it looks like. But the Old Testament prophet received from God a vision of what would happen when Messiah finally reigns, and this is what the world is going to look like. So in one way or another, the curse is mitigated during the kingdom age. You know the, the next verse, verse 8, the nursing child shall play, with the whole of the, shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's going to be a glorious time. 
I wish I knew more about it. And speculation gets us into trouble. But I'll just tell you, that's part of the kingdom age. I don't have time to have you turn with me to Isaiah 65, but you can read that text as well if you care to later. It describes this beautiful vision that really, it's, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, but it's clearly the kingdom age blending into the new heavens and new earth, and it has the same kind of promise about a mitigated curse. Now, you know what this teaches me, what this reminds me of is we're all trying to have our minds reset, renewed this morning. It's important for us to recognize that until this time comes, we have to acknowledge the inescapable pains of the curse on creation. We're all the victims of it. Every now and then we bring trouble upon ourselves, but generally speaking, we live in a broken world. That's the reason more hair has fallen out this week than was there last week. It's a reason it's more important that I see my doctor on a regular basis than when I was younger. It's a reason that there's going to come a time, if Jesus doesn't come back, when my family's going to gather and grieve, but hopefully they will not grieve as those who have no hope. And God's people don't live as Pollyannas, pretending like that doesn't happen, because it does happen. In the few years that I've known you, I look at some of you and I see the heartache that you've gone through and the loss that you've experienced. And we just have to recognize that the only hope that gives meaning for that, otherwise we become overwhelmed with the weariness of this broken, flawed, cursed world. The only hope is found in the promises of the gospel, the kind of promises we're talking about here. And we need to hold on to that because there's hope in the gospel what one author calls future faith. We live in faith toward the future because of what Jesus has done in the past and what he promises. The end of verse 3, it says that Satan, the dragon, will be released for a little while. Why is that? Well, come back next week and then the following week and we'll, we'll talk about why. Let me just point out as we look to the future, as we look to next week, who does participate in the coming kingdom? The redeemed. The redeemed are the ones that participate. And that's us. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But do you see what we find in the text today? We find a lot of unanswered questions. I admit that. But what we ultimately find is we find reminders of why it's worth it. Reminders of why we should not grow weary in doing well. Reminders of why we shouldn't give up. Reminders of why, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, even though we feel pressured, we're not, we're not crushed, we're not destroyed. Our hearts can be heavy, but we don't lose heart. Why is that? Because as God's people, we remind ourselves, the kingdom is coming. Could be in our lifetime, I don't know. It could be another 10,000 years from now. There's no way to say with any certainty. But what we can say is that until it happens, God is still faithful and He's building His church, and all the redeemed will be part of that glorious kingdom. Until then, every day, but especially every Lord's Day, we come together 
to have our minds renewed so that we don't lose heart. Kingdom come. Here's your takeaway today. Remember, every day remember, kingdom come. Every day remember, kingdom come. Father, speak to our hearts today. Encourage those who are discouraged. It's my earnest prayer that some have found encouragement this morning. It's also possible that some have been challenged because they know that they've been deceived and seduced away by the systems of this world and by the evil one. And I pray that you would convict them and work in their hearts and lives and draw them into the truth, help them to acknowledge their need. And if any have never trusted in Christ, I pray that they would find the forgiveness that's offered only in Christ and in Christ alone. And Father, may we be people, even though we may disagree about the details of eschatology, may we be people who recognize that the inescapable promise is that one day you will set all things right. And when we are discouraged, when we are tempted to lose heart, we are reminded that your kingdom comes. Help us live faithfully that way. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.